Welcome. This is Salty Therapy, and my name is Tammy. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice. However, this podcast is not intended to be used in place of professional treatment. It is intended for encouragement, information, and entertainment. So we've spent the last two weeks talking about addiction. Uh, We started with addiction, and then we covered recovery. And this week, I want to discuss relapse prevention and go over um, something called a relapse prevention plan, discuss the different parts that you might have in yours or in your loved one may have in theirs, and how it can benefit you. Now, I do want to make a quick note here that there are many different um, belief systems that are around addiction. Uh, there's a, a large consensus that this is a disease. Um, it It is a diagnosable um, condition. It's in the DSM. Uh, there's many people who believe it's a choice. There's many people who, you know, have spiritual beliefs around addiction. And the same thing is true about um, recovery and even relapse prevention, that there's many different ways um, that somebody can go through recovery. And I clearly am not covering every single minute of or every single detail, I should say, um, that can be out there because it would just one, bore you to death, and two, it would just take entirely too long to do that. So I am speaking from um, my own personal experiences, uh, working with clients, um, having this uh, as a uh, large part of my family history, um, and just from a clinical perspective, um, from what I have learned. So, um, if you do have something different to offer, if you have a different, uh, point of view, um, please feel free to email me. I'm always open to learning. I, I try to be open-minded. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to agree with everything, but I'm, I'm a great listener. Um, and my email address is saltytherapy at gmail.com. You're welcome to reach out to me there. Before we get started on this, I do want to note that this is a longer podcast and it is necessary because of what we're covering. A relapse prevention plan is detailed, and I didn't want to rush through these details, and I not only wanted to offer the components, but also suggestions. So thank you in advance for taking the time to listen, and remember to take some notes as you're listening, because I think you'll find the information valuable. What is a relapse prevention plan? Well, basically, it's a written document. It's a document that's constructed from a holistic approach, and it's um, meant to provide a preventative look for the person in recovery and how their life in recovery should or can look like to include plans of action, triggers, and coping skills. So, it's really important that you don't wait until you're in relapse mode to think about, oh, how am I going to handle this? It's important to have time to really think about what your triggers are. And they're 
there's many that are common, but there are also many people who have their own individual triggers, which can be very sensory. They can be smell or sight. Uh, it can be driving down a particular street. It can be particular people. So um, this is a very personalized document. And I always suggest that when you're working on this document that you um, involve somebody else in the process, uh, whether that be a sponsor or your therapist or your significant other, that they can look over it and they may think of or see things that you may not have thought about, um, but would be uh, beneficial for you to have on your relapse prevention plan. So kind of kind of like a proofreading, if you will. So components of a relapse prevention plan. Well, we're going to start with the meeting schedule. Always, always, always as a clinician, um, I recommend 90 and 90. So what that means is you're doing a minimum of 90 meetings in 90 days from, from the beginning of your recovery process. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because um, it teaches accountability and it provides accountability. Um, it starts a habit. You're creating a habit. Um, every day you're having recovery information coming at you, um, filling your mind, reframing the way you're thinking about things. Um, it gives you a place that is a safe place to ask for help or to talk honestly about where you're at in your recovery, um, gives you the opportunity to meet other people in recovery and begin building a sober support network. Um, and it also gives you the space and opportunity to identify a sponsor, identify a home group, understand the components of recovery. So 90 meetings in 90 days. Now, honestly, people that are really working on their recovery hard, um, they usually go to more than 90 and 90. They, they will sometimes catch a uh, morning meeting and an evening meeting, or they may do a nooner at lunchtime on their lunch break from work and then hit an evening meeting before they go home. So, um, it's, that's not unusual. So don't think, oh, all I have to do is 90 and 90. No, if you need 180 and 90, then do 180. Um, and don't let those numbers uh, blow you away. This is something about taking it one day at a time, one meeting at a time, as you need them. Okay. The other thing about having a meeting schedule on your relapse prevention plan is ahead of time, you're going to look up and you're going to identify the meetings that you're going to go to each day. So you have the place, the day of the week, the time and where, Monday through Sunday. And um, I'm going to recommend that you pick different types of meetings. Um, where I live, they have um, uh, meetings first thing in the morning, like at eight o'clock in the morning on the weekends at a beach. I just think that that would be my all-time favorite that's my happy place, right? So um, 
For some people, they may not like, I have a friend in particular who cannot stand the heat. Well, that wouldn't be her happy place. She wouldn't enjoy being on the beach for a meeting. She would enjoy air conditioning. Um, I recommend that you find at least one meeting that is gender specific. So that means it's going to be all women or all men, because as a man, you're going to speak about things or bring up topics that you wouldn't bring up in a mixed crowd. Um, or you wouldn't talk the same way in a mixed crowd. And so having a gender specific meeting, um, can help you to really look, listen and, and talk about things that are very, um, specific to your challenges or the things that you have experienced. Um, I suggest mixing up the types of meetings. There are topical meetings. There are uh, step meetings. There are meetings that are just, um, you know, talk meetings where people tell their stories and people just talk. Um, so mix it up. One, you don't want to get bored with the same type of meeting right? Um, you want to be challenged, you want to learn. Um, and it's also a good way for you to see different types of people in recovery. Um, the people that are more serious about recovery, you're going to find in some meetings that, um, you're not going to find the less serious people. Um, so, and that's going to be your pool of people that you're more likely to look for a sponsor in, right? You're going to want somebody who's really had a strong recovery program and has really, um, been working their program for a while to be your sponsor, right? Because you're looking at that person as a mentor. You're looking at that person as somebody that, um, you would like to be like, or, or have that um, what they have one day. The second part of the relapse prevention plan are going to be any follow-up appointments. When you're coming in to recovery, whether you go through detox or you go through a residential program for 28 days or 90 days, or you're just deciding, I want to get clean and sober, you probably haven't been taking care of some of the things that you should be taking care of in terms of your physical health. So getting to your medical doctor, getting, getting blood tests run, um, you know, looking at your liver panels, um, whether you are an alcoholic or if your, um, drug of choice is drugs, um, that can be very taxing on your liver and medications that may be offered to help with relapse prevention or to help with co-occurring diagnoses such as depression or bipolar, um, they're going to make different choices based on where your liver's at and the health of your liver. So follow-up appointments are going to include your medical doctor. They're going to include uh, a psychiatrist. Uh, you should probably um, think about getting a therapist for a short time so that you have somebody that you can begin to really work through some of the feelings that are going to show up now that you're not numbing um, all the time. Um, I really recommend considering an outpatient program. So it's, it's similar to residential in that you'll have a group program, um, as well as probably a one-on-one -on -one therapist. 
once a week, twice a week, um, but it's not residential. You can still go to work and you still go home at night to your family or to your bed, um, but you get extra support, extra level of accountability. Um, and then unfortunately for a lot of people who struggle with drugs or alcohol, they come into recovery because there's been a legal situation that has happened, a DUI, an arrest. Um, and so you definitely want to have any legal obligations noted on that calendar, um, whether it's a court date or meeting with probation, having uh, to find an attorney, what, whatever the case may be. The third component is going to be a list of friends um, and your sober support community, the people that you can call when you need to talk before you make the choice to pick up. Now, list of friends. You're obviously not going to call those people that you were friends with when you were using. They're probably not going to be your best support system in this case. Um, so you're going to have to be careful about who those friends are. Um, and honestly, I have had a number of clients who, when I told them to take those people out of the pool, realized that they really didn't have any friends that they had remained in contact with. Um, what they didn't realize, however, was they had friends who had disengaged because of their behaviors, but if they reached out to them saying, hey, I'm in recovery now and I'm really trying to do this, do you think we can talk now and again? Those friends were open to that. Now, if you're somebody that has been a chronic relapser, you may not get that same answer. You may not get that support um, because they're setting boundaries for themselves and for you. Um, so identifying friends, even if it's just one or two is going to be important. And what is different from a friend and your sober support community? Um, your sober support community for me, when I think about that is really more to do with those people who truly understand what it is to be in the grips of addiction and they understand what recovery really looks like, right? Um, you know, I always say that that people that are working recovery, um, they have great BS meters. And, and you know what I mean by BS, right? Um, they, because people who have a history of addiction generally have a very strong history of lying and manipulation, um, have strong defense mechanisms and where they can minimize or, or um, uh, project their stuff onto something else or, you know, change the subject. And people that are working recovery, they pick up on that pretty easily and, and they won't, they won't allow it really is what it comes down to, or they'll at least acknowledge it and say, okay, this is what you're doing. And if that's the game you want to play, you know, you can play it, but it's not going to, it's not going to work out well for you in the end. So a sober support community is really, really going to be primarily those people that are in recovery and that understand the disease of addiction and they understand the process of recovery and what you really need. Um, and a lot of those phone numbers you're going to get when you go to meetings, they pass around 
um, a sheet with, with people's phone numbers that you can call. Now, this is hard for people, uh, especially new in recovery. Cold calling is what it feels like, like you're a telemarketer. Here's what I want to offer as something to think about. If I don't want to be called, if I don't want to have random people calling me in the middle of a crisis or, um, you know, uh, a total stranger that's just somebody that got my phone number in the rooms, I'm not going to put my name and my number on that list. If I've put my name and my number on that list, it's because I want to be there for you. I want to be a voice on the other end of the line that helps you through that. And why? Because somebody was there for me. Because that's my form of service work. Because that, in part, helps keep me sober. So when you look at that list and go, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to bother them. I don't, they don't know me. They, you know, they're going to be irritated. I would, I would challenge you to stop partnering with that lie because that's exactly what it is. And even if you don't know that person well, or if you don't know them at all, what you know is that they're going through the same thing you're going through, which is recovery, that they have likely felt exactly the way you're feeling right now. And so they can relate. And that's really all you need. You can get to know them as time goes on. But in that moment of crisis, when you're really thinking about picking up, all you need is somebody on the other end of the line who gets you. They know the things to say, or perhaps they know the things to do to lessen the likelihood that you're going to pick up that you can say, okay, for the next hour, I won't pick up, right? So a sober support community. Um, Number four on the list of things in your relapse prevention plan is list your top three triggers for relapse. And know that for each trigger, what would be an appropriate response that you can have to that trigger versus picking up, right? So um, a common trigger for people that are in recovery is boredom. So what do we do for that? Well, we can have a list somewhere of the things that we gave up when we were drinking or using drugs. Um, Things like fishing or exercising or artwork, writing, music, dancing, um, playing with our dog, going to the dog park, um, doing things with our children. There were probably a hundred things that you gave up in the process of your addiction uh, because you didn't have the time or you weren't lucid or you didn't have the money. Um, whatever the case is, re-engage with those things. You can pick up the phone and make plans with people, make plans with somebody that you've met in one of the rooms to have coffee or meet for lunch. Um, Many of the recovery programs, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous also has uh, group things that are going on, Uh, bowling leagues and softball leagues, and they do cookouts and outings, um, and they do things where they get together as groups. And listen, even if you don't play softball, 
go to the softball game and cheer them on. It's fun, right? It's an, it's an activity that you get to do with other people. And you realize, oh my gosh, I can have fun without being wasted. That's kind of cool. I don't have any negative consequences. I get to wake up the next morning and remember it. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not wondering, oh my gosh, what did I do last night? It's a fun time without the negativity. So um, think about your triggers and what an appropriate response to that trigger can be. If your trigger is anger, then you've got to think of some coping skills um, that you can use to minimize that anger so that the anger doesn't keep you in a place where you pick up in order to numb out. Um, Coping skills for anger could be going for a walk or going for a run or hitting the punching bag. It could be meditation. It could be prayer. It could be picking up the phone and talking it out with somebody. Um, it could be taking a time out from the person or the, the event that is making you angry. Uh, reframing. Um, we're going to be talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. That's um, a, a a technique, if you will, that um, teaches you how to change perspective, how to change the way you choose to believe um, about what is happening in your world. Um, There are going to be a lot of different triggers for a lot of different people. This is where a therapist is going to be very helpful um, because you can talk about what your triggers are um, and your therapist can help you build your toolbox with coping skills and, and really break apart um, your, your relapse prevention plan into pieces. Um, I will even have some of my clients complete a relapse prevention plan and bring it to me and we will use a session to go over it line by line and I offer feedback or um, add a boy, add a girl, encouragement because they did a really good job thinking things through. Um, they may have some fantastic ideas of how to cope with something like um, grief, unresolved grief. And I may know of something that they haven't thought about and I bring it to the table to add to their toolbox. So when it comes to the triggers and the coping skills, uh, definitely think about how a therapist can help you with that. Um, what coping skills will you use to manage cravings? Okay. So cravings can be, they can come in different ways. Um, one thing that I have heard in the recovery world is, um, if alcohol is your drug of choice, um, always have a drink in your hand, a bottle of water, uh, coffee, soda, seltzer, um, always have something because you don't want to get thirsty. Um, especially if you're in a social scene, if you're already carrying something in your hand, it is less likely that somebody's going to come up and say, hey, can I get you a drink? Right? Because you already have something in your hand, it would be a little redundant. Um, uh, I know that there are people who um, use uh, lollipops or suckers 
um, that that is helpful. Um, I know in the beginning that, uh, especially people that struggle with alcoholism, they, it, depending on what they drink, they miss the sugar from the alcohol. And so they need to have that extra sugar in the beginning, uh, to help with the cravings. Their body says that they're craving, your mind is saying, oh, I'm craving the alcohol and the body's missing the sugar right? It really just comes down to biology and chemistry. Um, there may be um, uh, cravings that uh, come with like locations. So can you then uh, retrain your brain to, you know, if you if you're missing being at, say, you play billiards, and you really miss going to the to the billiard hall, and you know you can't go there because that's where you used to buy your stuff and use, right? That's where your supplier hangs out at, or you have to go down this one street to get there. Can you do something different? Can you find another hobby? Can you do you have a friend who has a pool table at their home that they're a safe friend that you can go and play pool, but you don't have to be in an area that is dangerous for you in terms of your recovery? Um, the next thing uh, that we would talk about are um, listing the top three things that elicit anger or frustration. The reason we bring up those um, feelings is because generally speaking, that anger and frustration can be some of the primary feelings that come up in the beginning in recovery um, because you're angry at yourself, you're frustrated with yourself, you're angry with the people that you were living around. You might even be angry that they that they um, sent you to rehab. Uh, you might be angry that they had you Baker acted. Uh, there may be anger that has been stuffed down for years and that you were drinking or drugging away for years. And now that you don't have the substances, all that anger rises to the surface. You may become frustrated because you lost your job and now you have to get another job and it's a job that's less than what you had before, but you've got to work your way up again. Um, these are very real things that can happen. And generally speaking, people that have had a history of addiction never really developed coping skills to manage anger and frustration. So when anger and frustration show up, it escalates really fast. Um, because you don't have a roadblock to throw in front of it. So you've got to figure out, um, what are the top three things that are going to elicit that anger or frustration? So maybe you don't have a great relationship with your father. And every time you get around him, you get angry because you guys fight or you have, um, pent up resentment for him. Um, so what coping skill would you use to manage that? Perhaps it is, you don't see your father for a while. That may be a very real decision you have to make. 
Uh, it may be that you will only see him in certain situations where you know if there are other people around, enough distractions that you um, don't have to be triggered by him so much. Um, maybe it's we go into a public, we meet in a public place, so everything is... Uh, kept at a surface. And this is until you've learned how to manage the anger and frustration. Perhaps you've had some time to work out some of your feelings through doing your step work or talking to your sponsor or journaling or working with a therapist. And so you can eventually reconnect with your father in a more intimate setting and begin having those honest conversations without that anger and the frustration um, coming to the to the to the top of it, right? Um Top three internal triggers, shame, guilt, anger again, and boredom. Remember I said boredom for so many people is a number one trigger and name the coping skills that you will address or that you will use to address those. So what coping skills would you use to address shame, guilt, anger, boredom. Well, we just talked about anger. We've talked about boredom in terms of, you know, re-engaging with old hobbies, finding new hobbies, um, joining some of the group activities that your recovery community is doing, making plans with friends. Um, shame and guilt. Those two are interesting uh, because they are very internal. They are usually very personal. The problem is, is they are oftentimes, would illegitimate be the right word? And what I mean by that is, are you feeling guilty for something that you didn't do? Guilt implies that you did something wrong. Did you intentionally do something wrong? Maybe you did. Maybe you did something wrong while you were using. And so there is guilt about that. Or maybe you did something that you were ashamed of while you were using. Um, You know, depending on how far your addiction took you, you may have made specific choices that led to you doing things that your uh, sober self would never even consider as an option. But the desperation to have your drugs or to um, get off the streets or whatever led you to do things that, um, that have left you feeling shame. Well, coping skills for that. What, what makes sense for you? It can be talking to others in recovery because they've more than likely had the same experiences. Going to a meeting Going to a meeting and listen to someone telling their story and realizing it's not just you. Because when we're in shame and guilt, we feel like we're the only ones in the world that understand it. And when you hear other people's stories, you go, I'm not alone anymore. Or you think, wow, I thought my story was bad, right? And you find out that it could be much worse. Um, other tr- or other coping skills might be that you use that therapist 
and use that therapist to work through the shame and the guilt. Praying, doing some spiritual work. Spiritual work for many people can address shame and guilt. It can certainly address anger as well. But you need to identify those internal triggers and you need to identify at least one coping skill for each to address it. I really suggest identifying a minimum of two to three coping skills for each of these triggers that we've talked about. The next is going to be the top three negative thought patterns, the I can't do this, and then the corrected thoughts. Um, I can't stay sober forever. Okay, that might be an honest response. It's negative, but it's honest. Can you correct that thought and say, I can stay sober today. I can stay sober today. Much more doable, much smaller goal, right? Um, another negative thought pattern might be, um, nobody's going to ever forgive me. What I've done is unforgivable. Well, first of all, you're not in control of that. And secondly, what you have forgotten through the process of your addiction is that um, you had a group of people that loved you at one point. They didn't like your behavior. You may have hurt them by your behavior, but they didn't necessarily stop loving you. They just couldn't love you when you were in your addiction. But when you're in recovery and you have proven that you are seriously taking recovery as a, as a life choice, then you may find that forgiveness follows. You may just need to ask, but again, you're not in control. Um, another negative thought pattern may be, I'm not worth it. Really? Why aren't you worth it? What would be a corrected thought pattern? I may not feel worth it, but I am worth it for someone else. My kids deserve me. Maybe my story is the story that changes somebody else's life sitting out there for the first time in a meeting. That makes me worthy. You don't know the worth you have. And from my spiritual perspective, God says you're worthy. God says your life was worth he giving up his son for so that he could have an eternity with you. That's how worthy he says you are. Um, the next item would be the top three high risk situations, bars, sporting events, old friends. There may be um, streets that you drive down routes that you go to and from work. Um, these are things that you have to rethink. And the, the hard part about that is you may not know it's an issue until the first time you drive that route to work and you go, oh my gosh, there's the liquor store I always went by. Or, oh my goodness, that's where my dealer lives. Or he's just around the corner. 
um, I had a friend who was looking for somebody and she found herself and it was completely innocent, but found herself in the very location that when she looked up, she realized this is where I used to meet my dealer. And she didn't even mean to be there. So that's a high risk situation because it immediately put that thought in her mind, right? And so what is the coping skill to address them? Well, obviously changing your roots, staying away from these places, um, changing your friends. I have said this before, but you should um, clear your phone, change your phone number. Um, you know, drug dealers are salesmen and they're very good at what they do. And they will, they will look for you. They will try to find your phone number. They will call you and offer you something free. I miss you. Hey, buddy. You know, they act like they're your friend. They're not your friend. You're their customer. They are a drug dealer. They are not looking out for your best interest. They are not your friend. Please hear that because I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, but he's so cool and he's, you know, he's a great dad and no, he's your drug dealer. That's what he is. And you need to keep that framed correctly. And I shouldn't say he, all drug dealers are not men. There are female drug dealers as well. Um, So keeping away, you may have to stay off of social media. You may see things on social media that are triggers for you, seeing old friends on social media doing that old stuff that when you see it, you go, man, I miss that, right? So um, these are coping skills. The next one is what are you going to do to maintain physical, emotional, and spiritual health? So you need to look at nutrition. Are we going to watch our caffeine intake? Are we going to watch how much sugar we're eating? Um, Are you going to, many people I know go to a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. They feel cleaner, they juice. And so their body begins to feel healthier. Their liver begins to regenerate. Um, And with this feeling of physical well-being, they feel stronger and they feel more equipped to manage the symptoms of withdrawal or the symptoms of pause. Um, exercise, getting your body moving. I don't care if you go for a walk with the dog, if you go to the gym and do circuit training, if you take a boxing class or a yoga class, getting your body moving, getting those endorphins moving, um, feeling better in your skin, right? This is going to be important. And It's also a great coping skill to deal with those big feelings that we were talking about, not to mention boredom. Meditation is excellent for emotional and spiritual health. You can meditate on scripture. Uh, you can meditate on gratitude. You can, um, take yourself to your, you know, quote unquote secret place, that place that you visualize in your mind's eye, um, of where you are most relaxed and happy. And so that can help to bring down anxiety. It can help to relieve some of the symptoms of depression. Um, keeping your doctor's appointments. We, we talked about that. So important to keep up with those appointments um, and be accountable to those things. Start going back to church. 
and they'll welcome you. Start going back to church. Um, get involved in a Bible study where it's a smaller group of people and you have the opportunity to learn how to read the word and learn how to be encouraged by it and to find things in it that you find helpful for yourself. Journaling. Uh, it may be a prayer journal where you write out your prayers. It may be a bullet list where you just vomit on paper all the things that are running through your mind. How many people struggle with racing thoughts at night? Get the journal out and just start putting those thoughts down on paper and let your mind release them. Um, it could be a gratitude journal. Just list the things that you are grateful for. There is a book by a woman named Ann Voskamp, and it's called, oh my goodness, I just forgot the name of it. Um, I believe it's called 1000, 1000 Gifts. And she was challenged by somebody to begin keeping a gratitude journal and, and listing a thousand things she was grateful for. And it sounds, overwhelming. But if you get a journal and you just start noting and you keep your eyes open for the little things, just the little things, like maybe your baby didn't pitch a fit today. Maybe the, the, your son and daughter got along and played quietly together while you cooked dinner. Um, you didn't burn dinner and it can be big things like you heard from an old friend or you finished step three or, um, you were encouraged at a meeting because somebody said how much you inspire them and you were surprised by that. Another thing is taking time for yourself really building in time for self. And that can come in many different ways. I know, I know women who literally have prayer closets in their home and their family knows when they're in that space, in that closet, um, that that's their alone time. Um, it might be one day a week that you ask, um, to be able to sleep in and, um, have a quiet morning. Maybe you wake up 30 minutes earlier than the rest of the family and you take that time to read your recovery de devotionals and have time of prayer going for a walk, getting your nails done, uh, going to the, to the, um, the driving range and hitting a basket of balls, um, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, but taking that time for yourself. <clears throat> so the next thing that's going to be on your relapse prevention plan is going to be developing a detailed daily schedule to follow. So this is important in the beginning, especially you really want to keep it simple. If you're honest, you didn't have a really great schedule before you entered recovery, except that you knew you had to have that drink when you first woke up and you knew you had to stay on top of it every so many hours and, or you knew that you had to have the call into your dealer by a certain time in order to have the drugs by a certain time. That was your daily schedule. 
Now you need to have a daily schedule that has you waking up at the same time every morning, that you start your morning the same every day. You start on your knees, having giving thanks on, and asking for wisdom and guidance and, and the ability to remain clean and sober today. Uh, you are either working, looking for work, or you work in the home uh, with your children, but you, you have those responsibilities, either inside or outside of the home. Your meetings are going to be on that schedule. Calling at least one person in recovery every day needs to be on that schedule. Um, doing your step work needs to be on that schedule. Doctor's appointments need to be on that schedule. Spiritual work needs to be on that schedule. The end of the day, when you're on your knees again, thanking God, your higher power, for allowing you to get through another day um, needs to be on your schedule. And it's and it's something if you've been in a residential program, you'll notice that there's a very clear schedule to follow and it's pretty repetitive. <clears throat> in the beginning, when you're trying to get clean and sober, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that can feel very overwhelming. So the more simplified your schedule is, the better. The second part of looking in, um, looking into having a schedule is if you do a week at a time and say Sunday is your day to get ready for the week and you look at your schedule for the week and you go, wow, Wednesday is completely overbooked. I'm going to get overwhelmed. I'm going to get stressed. That's going to be a trigger. So I either need to A, cancel some things on Wednesday, or I need to reschedule. I need to move something from Wednesday over to Friday where I've got more room, right? The other thing that you might find on there is, oh my goodness, Friday, I get off work at two and I have nothing to do for the rest of the day. Well, then you need to figure out something to do for the rest of the day. And so if you know that on Sunday, you can start putting calls out and saying, hey, what's going on Friday night? Does a group of people want to get together? We can go to the movies. We can, um, you know, go bowling. We can get together at my place and have game night. Uh, whatever, make some plans. Um, maybe that's the, the night that you just, or the day that you decide I can meet with my sponsor and, and do some step work. Uh, maybe you do some service work on Friday, whatever the case is, you don't want to have a large block of time where you have nothing to do. Maybe you have a running to-do list or hunting do list, all those things that didn't get done at your house when you were drinking or drugging. Now you can get, start getting those done. So you use Friday to take care of that project that you meant to take care of a year ago. <clears throat> so having that calendar available in writing posted is a really good tool for you to manage your time and to keep your stressors down. Um, and they, they have a a saying in the rooms in some rooms it's it's called kiss keep it simple stupid i don't like the word stupid but i like the concept of keeping it simple right um another thing is if you're a very visual person you can color code your schedule and create a block schedule so you know that yellow is recovery there's recovery events happening in there. Green is work events. You know, red is your fun, your hobbies, your, the things that you enjoy. Um, and then you can look at it really quickly and make sure that you've got holistically 
you know, say three out of five things at least covered each day, right? Um, and this is also, um, you can create a template so that you don't have to constantly reinvent the wheel, right? The other thing is posting this is so helpful for your family, your significant other to look at it and, and know where you are, when you are, while the trust is being rebuilt. And then there is a reduction of risk of arguing, um, of suspicion. Um, and there are things that you may need to do that you wouldn't normally do, like, okay, I'll call you when I'm leaving the meeting and heading home, or I'll call you if my plans change and, or letting them have the ability to GPS your phone if, if that's part of the solution for you. So, um, having a schedule can be really helpful in holding accountability for yourself, letting others have accountability for you, but also helps to begin rebuilding trust that you are doing what you say you're doing. Um, again, in that schedule, you want to build in time to meet with your sponsor and with your SOBA support community, your meetings, spiritual fitness, whether that's church, prayer, um, time in the word of God, spend time with family. And remember, family is not always blood. Family can be your recovery family. Family can be your church family. Um, make sure that your sleep schedule is solid, that you're going to sleep and you're waking up about the same time every day. You're making sure that you're getting enough sleep. Um, and also build in some free time. You need to have that you time. You need to have that time to just breathe so that you can begin to explore Ah, let me re-engage in this. I used to like to sketch. Let me get out a sketch pad and, and do that a little bit. Or let me go out to the garage and, and get some of that scrap wood and, and do some woodworking. Um, and then the next part is going to be goals. What are your personal goals? What are your family goals? What are your job goals? What are your health goals? And, and list those goals out on your relapse prevention plan. That can help with making that list that I was just talking about where you can begin to um, use some of the time in your schedule to begin working towards those goals. Uh, the next component of your relapse prevention plan are relapse warning signs and what you will do when these become apparent. If you talk to anybody that's been in recovery, and I recommend that you do, I recommend that you ask them what are their relapse warning signs. Common ones, you stop going to meetings. You stop calling your sponsor. You start calling old friends. You start turning to old behaviors. You're either manipulating or you're getting really angry or irritable with people. You stop taking your medication. You start canceling doctor's appointments. These are all signs that you are in that relapse warning zone, right? The relapse is already happening in your brain and you've got to you have to um, stop that. So you have to know what they are, and then you have to know what you're going to do when they become apparent. Number one, tell on your disease, go to a meeting, call your sponsor, call your support system and tell them I'm in relapse mode. I've got some stinking thinking going on and I need help. Right. And they're going to know what to do for you. Um, 
The next component is if you relapse, what are going to be the first three things you do to get back on track? And I don't want you to look at relapse as a failure. Relapse is an opportunity to learn. So you may have thought you identified all of your relapse warning signs, and then you relapsed. You did the things that you were going to do. You didn't think you were in relapse zone. You relapse. You get back on track. If you take the time to go back and look and go, how did that happen? You can probably identify, you know what? I did this and I went there or I talked to this person and I need to add that to my relapse prevention plan. That's a warning sign. And what should I have done? What could I have done that would have made a difference? Um, And things to get you back on track, go to a meeting, number one, call somebody in your sober support community, preferably your sponsor, number two, um, and just saturate yourself with recovery. Get back in the big book, get back into your recovery devotionals, get back on your knees, um, get back to your step work whatever, whatever it takes to get your brain completely focused. Your full-time job in the beginning is recovery. Everything else is secondary. You obviously have to go to work. You obviously have to pay the bills. You obviously have to be a parent or a spouse, but you cannot do any of those things or do them well or do them right if you're not in recovery. So recovery has to be your first full-time job. Next component, What is your motivation for remaining clean and sober? Why are you doing this? And I hear a lot of people say, I'm doing it for my family or I'm doing it for my children. And that's amazing. And if that's your, if that's all you have to motivate you initially, then by all means. But eventually I would like to see you work to the point that your motivation is you want this, that you want the life that comes with being clean and sober, that you want all of the benefits and positive consequences that come with making those choices. Um, And your family, your children, your spouse, everybody else gets to benefit from that as well. But the motivation is, is yourself. Um, Signs of relapse mode. I want to go back to this for just a moment. There are some dirty words to me that if I hear my clients that are in recovery say this, I immediately have a red flag go up. And that is when they say, I've got this. I've got this are dirty words for me. That's overconfidence. A huge part of recovery is getting ego out of the picture and being humble. Think about service work. Service work is not about lifting yourself up. It's about being humble. Getting up and telling your story, putting yourself out there like that, there's humility that comes with that. So I've got this. If you hear yourself saying that, no good. If if you're coming to your first year anniversary and you go, I've been doing this. I'm on, you know, step 10 and, um, you know, I'm doing really good and I've been going to meetings and I've got this. I can, I can have a beer for my birthday. I can just have one. It'll be okay. Big mistake, big mistake. And you may drink just one beer on your birthday, 
but you've opened Pandora's box. I've got this overconfidence bad. Um, another sign of is impatience that recovery isn't moving fast enough. I don't feel good soon enough. I don't understand this. I still don't like these meetings. Uh, I don't want to do step work. I want all this to be over. I just want my life back. Why do I have to keep going to these stupid meetings? These are things that I hear. This is a sign of relapse mode. Um, this is another thing that comes up a lot. Testing your control, consciously putting yourself in high risk situations that test your sobriety. Now, there are times and situations where you may have to be in a place where, say, if you're an, um, an alcoholic in recovery, um, and you have a sister that's getting married and you're six months sober, and she's going to have drinking, she's going to have an open bar at the wedding, you you may be, you know, I can't not go to my sister's wedding. I have to be at my sister's wedding. It would devastate her if I wasn't at her wedding. But this may be a, a high-risk situation because there's an open bar and everyone's going to be busy and who's going to notice if I pick up a cocktail, right? So that's a situation where you have to be mindful of what do I need to put into place that will help to minimize my risk. So maybe your plus one is somebody from your sober support community um, or somebody within your family that understands what you're doing and they, they're your battle buddy for, for the night. You know, they stick with you. Um, that you have an honest conversation with your sister that says, listen, if it gets too hard, I may have to, you know, say goodnight early and leave. And you may have to go to right to a meeting. You may have to call your sponsor and say, hey, can you meet me for a cup of coffee? I need to talk or talk, go out into the parking lot and sit in the car and talk from the phone. Um, but there are people who will consciously go, I want to see how, I want to see how good I'm doing. And so they'll go to that place. They'll go meet with their old friends and, you know, it's okay if they're smoking around me, as long as I'm not smoking, it's okay. I just want to see if I can handle it. Well, that kind of goes back to the overconfidence. Um, but there are a lot of people who will look at that as a tool to, uh, measure how well they're doing in sobriety. I don't recommend it. Um, another problem may be that you devalue the help the, that is being offered by your sober support community. So when you're, your sober support community, if your sponsor says, listen, I need you to start, you know, calling me twice a day, I've got concerns and you, you know, are irritated by that. Or if you're being told you really need to get started with your step work and go, I'm not doing steps. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, sit there and, and think about all the past. The past is in the past. I'm just thinking about the future. Devaluing the help that's being offered by people who've been down this road and has, have figured out how to make it work. Um, and then saying that it doesn't have value, um, that should be a concern for you. If you're chronically in a bad mood and irritable, 
Uh, this may be caused by a sense of entitlement. It may be uh, indicators of resentment. It could be due to boredom or loneliness. It can also be signs of depression that you're not being treated for. Um, it is not uncommon for depression to show itself as anger. So these are things that you need to look at. If you are always in a bad mood and always irritable, um, you need to look at the root causes of that. And then another thing that could send you into relapse mode is major life event changes. You, you come home from residential rehab, you give it a month and your spouse goes, I can't do this. I can't, I can't be with you. Uh, so there's a divorce. Um, maybe there's a loss of a loved one. You, and you've not really dealt with grief as a sober person before. Um, and you don't know how to feel those really strong, um, moments. Uh, loss of a job, not uncommon. You know, when you get back from your, your residential rehab and you've been on FMLA and you think you're coming home to a job and then lo and behold, there is no job there because they discovered that there was behavior by you before you left for FMLA that was against the company policy and they were able to use that as justification for letting you go. So these are things that can be um, triggers for a relapse. Thank you for listening to Salty Therapy. I know that this particular podcast went a little bit longer, but this is such an important topic that I certainly didn't want to shortchange you. And for the last three weeks, we have been up to our necks discussing addiction, alcoholism, what recovery can look like in developing a relapse prevention plan. My hope is that you've learned something about yourself or your loved ones in a way that you can extend grace and forgiveness to yourself and others. And now that you know better, go out and do better. Take it one day at a time, and there will be some days that you will take it one minute at a time. Remember to practice self-care, and if you have never heard it, I want to share the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Stay in that space and grab serenity by the tail and live the full and abundant life that God created you to have. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give me a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family. If you have comments or suggestions for future podcasts, you can also find me at SaltyTherapy.com and at SaltyTherapy on Instagram and Facebook. Peace and joy. See you next week. <music>